You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Uh, hello, uh, I'm Zachary Nelson. I'm the ministry administrator here. I know most of you uh, know me, and if you don't, we do have an app, and I'd love for you to download it. Um, there's a certain weightiness when preaching in general. But there's a certain weightiness as I prepared for this text that I found uh, while looking through it. And I think the weightiness we see is that whenever the gospel is clearly presented, you also see a reality and a presence of sin. And so the weightiness that Peter continues to explain throughout this passage is this weightiness of sin. And so I joked with Hank a couple of weeks ago when I was looking at the, the passage I had been assigned to preach on, and I told him, I said, I feel really awkward about it. Um, and, and the reason I said that is because the way that, th- this is a sermon, by the way, this is Peter's sermon at Solomon's portico. And so when I read it, I read it as a sermon. And when I'm reading through it and I see all of the arguments he makes and the points he's making, what I'm really left with is we can read this and I can walk away and the gospel has been presented today. We've been turned to Christ Jesus. And so as I, one of the, uh, as I looked at that, I was reminded of the beauty of the gospel then and the gospel now, which is what we're looking at in Acts. The message of Christ Jesus then, that he's resurrected and defeated death, is the same message that has stuck around for the last two millennia, and it's the same message today. When we come to the pulpit or you go to any church or you listen to any message from somebody preaching from the Bible, if they're doing it right and they're doing their due diligence, their attention should be and their, their purpose should be to point you to Christ. That's what I hope to accomplish today as we read and look at the passage, that you are looking towards and see Christ for who he is. You see him as anointed, you see him as the Messiah, and you see him as the Savior of the world, and important, very importantly, your Savior. I'm going to read uh, the text in its totality, starting in verse 11 uh, and continuing through 26, and then I'm going to pray. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we open your text today, as we read from the book of Acts, Father, I pray that you would be glorified. I pray as we see the promise fulfilled in Christ Jesus that we would be reminded that the weight of sin is gone, that we would rejoice in this, that we'd be encouraged by this, that we may look at the world around us and be reminded that this is only temporary, that one day your son will come back, he will get his church, and he will bring them to be with him. Father, I pray that everything that comes from this mouth, from my mouth this morning, Lord, will be true. And I pray that if I say anything that's contrary to your text, that you would stop me. I thank you for your son, Christ Jesus. I thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Okay. So last week, uh, as you, if, I don't know if you noticed, in verse 11 we start, well, he clung to Peter and John. And so that's a weird thing to kind of pick up unless you were here last week. And if you weren't here last week, I invite you to go listen to our sermon, uh, Hank's sermon on Acts 3, 1 through 10. Uh, but if you weren't, I do want to go over it briefly. I don't want to re-preach what was said last week, but I do want to kind of catch us up in the story because I think it's important to see the energy that Peter is speaking to, okay? So verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. So what has happened? Peter and John were on their way to pray. They go to Solomon's portico, and as they're going inside, they're passing the beautiful gate, and there is a man who is lame, who is crippled since birth, and he calls out to Peter and John, hoping, uh, assumedly, as a beggar, that they would give him money, and they quickly tell him, hey, we, we don't have any money to give you. But what they end up giving him is far greater. They heal him. The man's been crippled since he was born, and they heal his legs completely. This is the power of Christ Jesus. The crowd is astonished. And there's, there's two parts here, which, which I kind of find it funny, uh, funny as Peter responds to them. He says, as Peter saw it, he addressed the crowd. Why do you wonder at this? And uh, you might read right past that, but the first thing I think, if, if I saw a man who couldn't walk, immediately made strong and able to walk, I would be in wonder. If, if, if it's a TV, a Facebook reel, or I'm walking on the sidewalk and someone is doing a trick with a coin and they make it disappear from their hand, I am astounded. This is far greater than that. So they're just surprised and astonished, which is what the text tells us, about what has taken place. And so they go and they're looking to the two men who just healed this lame man. And as they come to him, that's when Peter and John very quickly shift the focus. They do not want the glory for what has taken place because they are not responsible for what has taken place. Christ is responsible. Christ is the sovereign. They are his apostles. And so they quickly divert the attention to be back on Christ. But as they're doing so, they're asking him, why do they stare? And going back to this astonishment, again, I, I do understand why it would be astonishing, but I also want to remember the context in the year that we're in. This is A.D. 29, roughly. Christ, sorry, Christ has been killed and resurrected fairly recently. Prior to his death and resurrection, he had a three to four year ministry where he was walking around Galilee and Judea doing signs exactly like this. He was healing the blind. He was feeding not the tens and twenties, but the thousands, first four and then five, creating things to feed everyone in the crowd who was necessary and then having ample leftover afterwards. And so part of this, why are you astonished, is because they're used to this in a certain sense. They remember Christ Jesus. And so Peter's uh, addressment there, partly, in part, has to do with the fact that they should have expected it. This is Christ's power. It's not beyond him in any thought of the word. Another thing we want to notice here 
uh, is their attitude. And I know I've already said this, but I want to bring attention to it because it's, it's the purpose of all who seek after Christ Jesus. The attention is thrown back to him. He's talked with them for a bit, but he goes to answer them fully about what has taken place. And I know you're thinking, I'm jumping from uh, verse 12 to 16, but we'll get to 13 through 15. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man who you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him the perfect health in the presence of you all. I know I mentioned this is the power of Christ, but something that really alluded to me is the fact that he says perfect health. When I think of people getting better or being healed, I I typically think of a slow and steady journey. It takes time. I tore my shoulder when I was a wrestler and I had to have surgery on it and then I had to have months of physical therapy before it could get back to the shape it needed to be in. I remember about four weeks after the surgery, my my shoulder had been in a sling for a while and I looked, uh, not that I check myself out in the mirror a lot, but I saw in the mirror that this arm looked as if it had been deflated because I hadn't used it in weeks. This arm was still strong because I was using it for everything, but this arm was weak. It was, it, I had lost all muscle definition that I had had. And so when I hear this story and I see the crippled man who has been there since birth, the, the thing I'm thinking of is somebody who has missed leg day always. They're, they're, they're skinny. He doesn't have any muscle tone or definition upon which to prop himself up. But that's not what we see from the passage. What we see in the passage is upon being healed, upon being healed, He is leaping with joy, and he is clinging to the men who have healed him. He has been given perfect health. I I like to imagine, I know the text doesn't say this, but this is what I see when I see what uh, Peter is speaking about. I see his legs gaining muscle tone, because that is the power of Christ Jesus. He heals perfectly. He restores you to perfect health. And that is what has happened with the crippled man outside the beautiful gate. Jesus has healed this man. He's done it through his power, through his apostles. It is for the man's good, and it is also for his glory. And he got his glory from it. And so, and uh, this is going to seem like I'm I'm stepping back, and I am. We're going to take a brief pause. Before we go further into the story, there's two aspects that we're going to capture. I want to talk about messianic history. I want to talk about the history of the Messiah for the Jewish people. So, this crowd that he's speaking to, the sermon is being delivered to, is outside of Solomon's portico which is next to the temple. It's attached to the temple. And so he's speaking to them directly around the temple, and the people who went to the Jewish temple were, believe it or not, Jewish. And so the, he speak, the people he is speaking to are Jewish. That has to do with a lot of the heritage that comes up in this passage as we read it. He's talking to people who it identifies with, who have a camaraderie, who are hearing the words he's saying because they've been surrounded by that type of uh, language their entire lives. When he says, uh, you're, you're, uh, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, of Jacob, as he's pointing these out, it's as if he's talking to us and he's saying, your grandfather, they know that he's talking to them. The passage cannot be more direct, not to mention he continually says, you, 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 because it is them he is talking to. So, this coming of the Messiah is Jewish history. And it is abundant. And I am going to point out four passages here throughout the Old Testament where we see this preluding of a Messiah, this coming of a Savior, and there's much more. I do not have the time today to go through each passage in the Old Testament where it's pointing to Christ Jesus, but I just want to tell you firmly, all of Scripture points to Christ Jesus. All of the Old Testament, every time they talked about the King that was to come, the Anointed One in the future, as they're looking for it, they're looking for Christ. And so... 
the first passage I want to look at in Genesis 18, 18, and he says this more clearly to Abraham and other places, but I want to read this one specifically. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. He's talking about his lineage. If we look at the genealogies, Christ can be traced back to Abraham. That was the start of what we call the promise. Abraham was the chosen father. Of course, he has two sons, or two generations of son, and Jacob is then named Israel. But this is the line. It goes all the way back to Abraham since he chose him. He points this out because he is getting to the fact of discussing who the Messiah is and, and this is bad news, that, and I'll explain that when we get there, who the Messiah is and that he's come. In Deuteronomy 18, and 15, uh, 18, 15 and 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. This is Moses. The great Moses who led his people out of Egypt under the, uh, under the slavery of the Egyptians. He led them across the Red Sea and then led them in the wilderness. He is the great prophet. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. In verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is what Peter is referencing in verses 22 and 23 which is why I wanted to bring it up here. He's pointing to these Jewish people back. Look to the text that you regard as holy. This man has come. This foretelling that Moses was giving the people in Deuteronomy, it has been fulfilled. Another one in Jeremiah 23, 5. Uh, this isn't going to be on the screen, but I am going to read it here. Brandon just read it in the call to worship. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David... A righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called The Lord is our righteousness. All of these are pointing to Christ Jesus. The scripture is abundant of a coming Messiah. And one of the things, this also will not be on the text, that I just want to allude to. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, the man who came to prepare the way for Christ Jesus, he sends his disciples to go to Jesus, and they ask him a very simple question. Are you the one we should look for, or shall we look for another? The one is their Messiah. Christ tells him, go tell John what you have seen. The lame walk, the blind see. These were the, the signs that Isaiah gave us that the Messiah would be doing. Christ has done these things because he was the coming Messiah. The reason I wanted to spend time talking about this uh, history is to tell you all of the writing they had that pointed towards Christ Jesus. All of it pointed to him. The last one, the last passage I want to reference is Genesis 3.15. Now this isn't specifically a Jewish promise because it's uh, to Adam, the first man and woman I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And the, here it is. He shall bruise your head and you shall, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. I bring this up for us in the room to discuss the universal application that we are all burdened under sin and in need of salvation. After the fall, the same chapter that we see in Genesis, God already promises and declares that there will be redemption, restoration, and salvation for his people. So I know I've said it's been a long Jewish history, and you can track that back to Genesis 2 with Abraham and with his son, but you can track it back to the beginning of the Bible, where we see that man is burdened under sin, 
and in need of salvation. If Jesus wasn't the fulfillment of these promises, we have no hope, but he was. And so from Genesis 3 to Malachi, the entire Old Testament, what we're seeing is men who rise up and fail. Adam was originally our representative, and he ate the fruit and caused the fall of man. Abel came up after him. He was slain by Cain. Cain was a murderer. He murdered Abel. Noah is righteous, but then he was a drunk. Abraham, a pagan, and then a liar about his wife. Jacob, also a liar. He stole his brother's birthright. Moses, a murderer. Joseph, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Joshua died. He didn't continue living. They're still looking for a head crusher. From Genesis 3, all throughout Joshua, looking for a head crusher. Then we have the judges. At the end of the judges, they demand a king. They appoint Saul. Saul turns out to be a wicked king. They appoint David, who's an adulterer. And then you have Solomon, who, to put it nicely, is a polygamist. It continues. After Solomon, we have more and more kings who are wicked, who are turning from the Lord and worshiping idols, looking into, seeking after wickedness of the idols of their own heart. From Adam to Malachi, you have the Jewish people looking, looking, hoping, seeking, wanting, desiring somebody to come and save them. Waiting finally to the promise of Jeremiah 23 where God would appoint an eternal king who would finally deal in righteousness and establish them. Throughout all all of the Old Testament, he does not come. But then we have the New Testament and it opens and we get to see the gospel. We get to see the coming of the Messiah in Christ Jesus. So now we're going to get back into the story that we're in today. We're going to look more at Acts 3. And so I've, I've broken this up in two ways that I think are, are helpful for me. And the first is the bad news. And earlier I said, the Messiah has come and that's bad news. And you probably thought, he should leave. I don't mean that the Messiah coming was a bad thing. What I mean is it's bad for the Jews. And here's what I mean by that. I I just went through all of that history to tell you that they've been looking, they've studied the signs, they know what the text says, and they're waiting for this man to come. And he does. And they do not see him. But it's much worse than that. So to, to, to speak of it frankly from the text here in verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant. That's the bad news. He's already been glorified. And here comes the rest of the bad news. Whom you delivered over, who you denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. You denied the holy and righteous one and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. That's their Messiah, and they did not treat him fondly. You know, the, I, I talked originally at the beginning how there's a weightiness when speaking of the gospel because you have to talk about the presence of sin, and here's the weightiness that Peter is diving into. He is not holding any punches back. He's letting them know exactly what has taken place. They denied him. He was not their king. He was not their Lord. They served no allegiance to him whatsoever. They gave him nothing. And instead, what we see is that they delivered him. They arrested him 
under the cover of night and brought him before Pilate, seeking after his execution and crucifixion. They dealt him. Y'all, look, I was really trying to make all of these Ds. They dealt. They traded him over. They thought, this is something Hank said last week as we were discussing it, and I thought it illustrated the point perfectly. They thought the streets were safer with a murderer than Christ Jesus. Pilate before them is almost begging them to make the switch. Hey, I can release Jesus. I have found him not guilty. Wouldn't you rather that happen? And they beg him, give us Barabbas. They're intentional with it. They want the murderer on the streets. They do not want Christ there. They traded him. They dealt him over. And then lastly, and this is in verse 15, they killed the author of life. You think this is, like, that's harsh. The Romans did that. No. They asked for his crucifixion. The mob wanted him to die. There was no, like, illusion of they didn't realize what was happening to this man. They asked for his death. They put him to death. And so this is the guilt they're getting. They rejected him and they did not listen. And so remember, I said this is bad news, and let's look at verse 23 for some context of that. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Remember, Moses talked about a greater prophet coming. We talked about how Christ is that greater prophet. And now, rather than listening to him, making him Lord of his life, instead they delivered him over, traded him for a murderer, and had him killed. I, I feel like that fits the definition of does not listen. They rejected him. They killed the author of life. Why does Peter lay out this guilt? And here's where the passage really, I, I think, just you start to see the beauty behind it. Peter lays out this guilt for them because he is coming with the good news. He's coming to tell them who, who exactly Christ is and what he has done on their behalf. And so for the, the, the reality in the gospel is that sin must be communicated clearly. If you have a savior, it means he saved you from something. In order to know what you're saved from, you have to know that you're a sinner. So all of these people now know, Peter has made abundantly clear to them, you killed him, you rejected him, you denied him, and now they are assured of their guilt. They're responsible for the death of Christ Jesus. That's the weight of this passage. But now we see the good news. Wonderful news. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. This is verse 17. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Here it is. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you Jesus. They were blinded by their ignorance. I, I, I love that he uses this phrase. The first time I read it, I thought, what he's trying to do is like soften it. No, he's not. He just lit into them about their guilt. He's telling them about their ignorance. They, they had a blind religious zeal doing what they thought was right to kill this man so that they would be uh, delivered. And Caiaphas says as much, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, but they were, they were blind to the actual ramifications of rejecting and killing Jesus. We see that in, uh, during the crucifixion in Luke 23, 34. Christ is on the cross, and he looks, down, or looks up, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. 
And then I also wanted to read from John 11, 50 and 51. This is the high priest Caiaphas. He's the person who, uh, this is when they started just intentionally planning the crucifixion and death of Christ Jesus. Caiaphas says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And here's the ignorance I want to talk about in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He did not say this of his own accord. He thought it would be better for the, the, the Jewish hold on society, for their, their hold in religious circles, and uh, potentially his uh, outright belief and desire for uh, the law. He thought it would be better that Jesus had died, so that, that that should not be stirred. But what he doesn't know that it is, it was beneficial for the nation that Jesus should die, but not how he meant, not that they would maintain control, but because by Jesus' death, death was defeated. Because he resurrected and defeated it. One man did die for the salvation of a nation, but it was much more than that. One man died for the salvation of the world. Another thing I want to point out is this word servant in verse 13. Verse 13 says, glorified his servant Jesus. And I hope that word servant really sticks out to you and you think about some Old Testament text. Specifically, Isaiah 52 and 53, which is where we're going to be turned now. I know there's a lot on the screen, but if you'll bear with me, 52.13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is the suffering servant. 53.3-6, He was despised and rejected by men. We saw that. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, to wickedness, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here we see it in 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. What has Peter laid out for them? They were guilty. But Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law, taken their sin, and blotted them out. They intended, through their own malice, through their own wickedness, through their own evil, for their own purposes, to kill Christ. But God, much like with the story of Joseph, intended the suffering for the good of the many. Christ Jesus came to die that the world may be saved. And so the hope he presents them is in verse 19. Though they are guilty, Christ has fulfilled the suffering servant who has blotted out the sins. And so repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. What a beautiful thing to repent is to turn to the living God who loves you 
and who has sent his son for you. There's two actions here, and I love that Peter separates them as such. There's a repentance and a returning. Repentance is, to, quickly, to turn from sin. So you're, you're looking away from wickedness. But here's often a problem. You can be sorry for something. You can repent of things and feel like they're bad, and that's good. But that doesn't mean you're going to the right place. It is easy to repent and think that something else will save you. It's easy to repent and think, man, I need to get my life right. I need to be doing uh, X, Y, and Z. I need to read my Bible every day. I need to pray, and those are good things. I need to read my Bible. I need to pray. I need to get in small group. All of these things are good. But if you're creating a checklist of yourself to stick to so that you can justify yourself before the Lord as if that you've in some way, shape, or form shown worship of him through your actions, you're missing the point. They're not asking that we repent and turn to moralism and reburden ourselves under the law. What Peter is telling them is repent and return to the living God. Repent and look to Christ. Look to the man who is by his power, this lame, this crippled man was made perfectly healthy. That is what Peter is asking of him. It's not enough just to admit you're wrong and turn to something that is better than what you are currently doing. You must admit you are wrong, admit your sin, and turn to Christ. And then we see some beauty of that. As we see, once repentance has taken place, this time of refreshing, this is verse 20, may come from the presence of the Lord. The Holy Spirit may descend, and the sanctification process may begin within you. You will be made continually into his likeness that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. This can be a confusing passage, and what I want to tell you now, being refreshed by the presence of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit actively within the church restoring us. Refresh, it it literally comes from, like, aspire, the, the breath of it. The Lord is giving you new breath. He's restoring you in the Spirit. And then it says that Christ would come for you. Christ is currently, it talks about how he's, uh, heaven must receive until the time for restoring. Christ is currently in heaven, reigning with his Father. But now that you've been refreshed by the Holy Spirit, again, talking to Jewish people, they can look for the coming of the Christ to come back for them. This life is no longer about being burdened by the law for them. It's no longer about making sacrifices in the temple. Now, look to Christ, trust in his righteousness, trust that he has saved you, and know that you can be looking forward with joyful expectance, expectation for Christ to come and bring you to heaven with him. That's their current scope of things. They can look to joy for the returning of Christ Jesus, knowing they have been saved finally and forever. Their kingdom can be conquered, their temple can fall, but it doesn't matter because Christ Jesus reigns on high and he will be coming back for them. Death has no hold on them because Christ defeated it. Okay, so we talked about the Messianic history. We talked about the good news and the bad news for the Jewish people. Now I want to talk about where that leaves us today. Because it's very easy to look at this passage and know that he's speaking specifically to the Jews and see that that is where the hope is. The reason I've tried to contextualize this and talk about this, and the reason I brought up Genesis 3.15 earlier in the whole fall era is because we are underneath sin. 
we are burdened by sin. We live in a sinful world. We are sinners. It's universal. You may not be able to trace your uh, Ancestry.com back to some Jewish relative. But, and uh, you can't do this through Ancestry.com either, but through logic, you can trace it back to Adam. There was one man and one woman in the garden, and thousands of years have passed, and now we have what we have today. Sin has been a burden on them since the fall. Sin has been a burden for us since the fall. Let's read verses 25 and 26. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. I know I established we're sinful, and I'm not going to go through a list to point out specific sins in our life. But if you have in any way, shape, or form fallen to God's law, whether you're a liar or a murderer or a stealer, whatever it is, you killed Christ. Because Christ came to save his people. His death was necessary for redemption of mankind. If Christ did not come, we have no hope. Our sin put him on the cross. Our sin was reason for his death. And the hope we see here. In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. All of the families. This is not exclusive to the Jewish people. It's not exclusive to America. It's not exclusive to Europe. It is for all the people of the world to be blessed. Galatians 3.28 tells us, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you were Christ, then you were Abraham's offspring, heirs according to a promise. This beautiful message that Peter is preaching to the Jewish people is of their salvation, but it is also of ours. Christ has once and forever defeated death. And just like the healing of the lame man before the beautiful gate, all that is required of us is to put our faith in him. We contribute nothing. We can bring nothing. God does not care about our religious acts until we are in tune with him. And lastly, this is where I will be closing in verse 26. I, I, I want to look specifically at the language. God having raised up his servant. God raised up his servant sent him to you first. God sent him first to the Jews to bless them by turning every one of you from your wickedness. All of these things are because of the decree and the will of Almighty God. And the hope here? By turning, there isn't room for uh, our interference. There's not room for us to reject him. God sent his son to save the world finally and definitively. There's no sorrow that, we are not, that God is not going to save his people. He has saved his people. He has done it through the man, Jesus Christ. 
And so the message I, I, I leave you with today is, is a simple one. Look to Christ and be saved. That is the gospel. It's nothing we bring to it. It's nothing we accomplish. It is that Christ alone saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your message is true and your message is eternal. Scripture is sufficient. You have given us the, the teachings and the promises of your people and declared to us that a Savior has come. Father, I pray that in all things we would look to Christ. I pray that we would never be disillusioned or misguided by cheap tricks or moralism, that, but that we would always look and know that he is sufficiently through his work on the cross, his resurrection, defeat of death, saved his people. In Christ's name I pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.